There is a long history of loneliness in literature, of loneliness as a prerequisite to love. Almost like you can't really love someone unless you've been alone and loveless for a long time. At least, if you're a woman. Almost as if this protracted alone time is a purification, prepares a girl to be worthy of a man's love. Think of the Greek myths, the Odyssey, Calypso dancing sorcery alone on her island, Penelope waiting 20 years for her wandering husband to return. Think of our fairy tales, the stories we tell our daughters before we put them into bed, of Cinderella toiling in the dust before she can be fitted for those slippers, of Rapunzel living in a tower with only her long hair as her silent company. And then her prince comes to rescue her. Nabokov said that all good stories are fairy tales. At 17, I was primed to be someone's princess. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, April 5th, 2021, and today we're going to start with the question, have you ever read Lolita? Because for 42 minutes, we will consider memoir, consent, and Nabokov with Alison Wood, who shares the metamorphosis of her 17-year-old self from student to lover and then victim in her 2020 memoir entitled Being Lolita. A lonely and vulnerable high school senior, Alison finds solace only in her writing and in a young, charismatic English teacher, Mr. North. Mr. North gives Allison a copy of Lolita to read, telling her it's a beautiful story about love. The book soon becomes a backdrop to a connection that blooms from a simple crush into a forbidden romance. But as Mr. North's hold on her tightens, Allison is forced to evaluate how much of their narrative is actually a disturbing fiction. In the wake of what becomes a deeply abusive relationship, Allison is faced again and again with the story of her past, from rereading Lolita in college, to working with teenage girls, to becoming a professor of creative writing. It's only with that distance and perspective that she understands the ultimate power of language has had on her and how to harness that power to tell her own true story. Being Lolita is a stunning coming-of-age memoir that shines a bright light on our shifting perceptions of consent, vulnerability, and power. This is the story of what happens when a young woman realizes her entire narrative must be rewritten and then takes back the pen to rewrite it. Alison Wood's writing has been published in the New York Times, the Paris Review, the Rumpus, Catapult, and No Tokens. She teaches creative writing at her alma mater, New York University, and at Sackett Street Writers Workshop. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of Pigeon Pages, a New York City literary journal and reading series. Allison was a winner of the inaugural Breakout 8 Award from Epiphany Magazine and Authors Guild. Being Lolita from Flatiron Books at Macmillan is her first book. More information about her can be found at her website, allisonwood.com. It truly is an honor to be welcoming her today to 42 Minutes. How are you doing, Allison? I'm great. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Wonderful. Okay, so my head is swirling because it seems like there's a number of different directions we can start with, but let's just start with... um, I have in my notes from reading your book, and I don't know if this is a conclusion I made or a quote that I wrote down, but it says, 
Bad girls end up dead, and they deserve it, according to literature. That is, <laughs> I don't know if I said that exactly, but that is definitely something that I believe, except for, of course, the they deserving it part um, in reality. But that is unquestionably a way that we think about women in Western culture, not only in literature, but in all of our media and stories we uh, see in movies, in television, even in our the sort of um, fairy tales of our own world with celebrities and everything. I think that's such a, I mean, that, that idea is just sort of everywhere. You know, this dichotomy between the virgin, the whore, right? That's sort of um, the innocent versus the Jezebel. And the Jezebel is the bad one. And she deserves whatever pain or violence or even death that comes to her. Well, so when I, when I, I mean, the the second half of my note says, and this makes me think of Twin Peaks. I'm curious, did you watch Twin Peaks back in the 90s? I have watched some of it. I've not been able to watch all of it, though. It's so good, though. So good. But so that's the the fascinating thing to me, because they revived it. And when Mark Frost started writing about Laura Palmer again, mm-hmm. he changed her age from 17 to 18. And so, like, we definitely went through culturally something, but... You know, the the difference between 17 and 18, you know, is the difference between uh, illegality and... So there was things that were permissible and the culture have shifted. You know, where where's your head with all that now? I think in a lot of ways, the stories that we tell haven't shifted. Uh, uh, Laura Palmer is a great example of how even if you're not... Um, a bad girl, girls are still sort of best when they're dead, you know, because then they're able to forever be young and beautiful and innocent. So I, and I think Laura Palmer is a great example of that. And so many other women in literature who end up dying and therefore sort of becoming these illuminative, beautiful creatures like um, Juliet in so many of our stories, our fairy tales, um, our, you know, Shakespeare, all of these classic things. But I also think in a lot of ways that, well, changing from 17 to 18, like, okay, technically, definitely better. But in actuality, there's no difference. There's no real difference. And I can attest to that personally, in that in the book, you know, in my life, when I was 17 and being abused and groomed and manipulated by the teacher, it didn't suddenly get better or get okay the day I turned 18. Nothing changed. Nothing in how inappropriate and how cruel and how awful it was. It's just that he couldn't be arrested for statutory rape anymore. And if that's what we, if that's what our culture is really so focused on and valuing the fact that, well, you can't get arrested anymore, then I would say that our values are pretty fucked up. So, yeah. Yeah. But then Lolita, so I, that's the thing that's kind of shocking. He wasn't into like uh, underage girls, you know, he, he wasn't. wasn't- no. Like he was really into um she's 12. S- like I that's the reason so a, a confession I have read 
Nabokov, but I haven't ever read Lolita. And I think that's the stumbling block is because I can't like, all right. So here's the question. Have you, do you feel like you are an expert on the novel Lolita at this point? Oh God, no, no, of course not. I mean, I'm in, I'm not an academic scholar. I'm not, um, you know, I don't teach a graduate level course exclusively on Nabokov. No, no, I would never think that. And I would never claim that. Um, that was actually a major source of anxiety for me with the book in the beginning, because I was like, you know, well, I'm, I'm not a scholar, you know, I, who am I to say what I think about Nabokov or Lolita? And I feel very differently now, because even though I'm not an, a quote unquote expert, I still have things to say about Lolita, about Humbert Humbert, about Dolores Hayes, who Humbert Humbert calls Lolita. I still have things to say. And just because I'm not a you know, academic expert doesn't mean that my thoughts aren't valid or aren't researched or aren't logical or, you know, insightful and thoughtful. So that's really sort of what I've come around to it. And often, and as well, when I was so anxious about not being a, as you said, expert, that was really just imposter syndrome. And that was just me being being worried about <laughs> about the book and how the book would be seen and read and that was me worrying about other people and things that I had no control things that I had no control over and things that I think clearly from the way the book has been received don't matter so yeah <laughs> Do, have you so i i know you've read lolita a number of times um well, do you have any sense of what what was going on in his head, like what he was trying to accomplish as far as I know that, I mean, I, it seems like this is, this is a work that just is not going to die. Me too will not kill it. Um, it's, it's just a beloved item of art. Um, I'm just, what do you think he was trying to accomplish with that book? You know, I can't speak for Nabokov and I'm, I'm not going to try to. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's sort of crossing a line, but I mean, he has, he has said that he's quoted as, you know, in interviews and lectures and things saying that Lolita is um, one of his favorites. He's written about how, or he's, you know, been quoted as saying how um, he saw Lolita as something very much being built upon the scaffolding of other stories of fairy tales, of mythology, of other literature um, so he didn't see Lolita as sort of being its own thing coming out of nowhere. Um, Nabokov was a classicist, you know, but I think it went in regards to me too. Um, and sort of the way that we look at Lolita now, yes, Lolita is a beautiful book. There is some gorgeous writing in Lolita. I mean, the opening, the first chapter, Lolita, light of my life, bar of my loins, my sin, my soul. My God, that opening page is stunning. It is a master class in how to use poetic devices, how to manipulate your reader, how to suck a reader in. Like there's so much, so much to be taught and to learn from that. Yet at the same time, Lolita is a incredibly problematic, to, to put it lightly, problematic, offensive book. And it's 2021. It can be both, right? It can be beautiful 
and it can also be disgusting and offensive. And it can be both. And it does not have to be one to exclude the other. And I think that that's something that um, feminists understand. And I feel like a lot of women un understand because, you know, we've had to live with these kinds of dichotomies and tensions our whole lives in a lot of ways. But I think it is still oftentimes sort of really hard in a larger cultural way because you, you want it to be simple, right? You want it to be a beautiful work of art or you want it to be something that needs to be canceled. And it's not that simple. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> last year I read a book called The Tunnel by William Gass. And it is it is exactly that where the narrator is just so despicable that you're uncomfortable mm -hmm. spending time with him, but it's written so beautifully that you're just so torn. It's like, I want to celebrate this work, but I don't want to celebrate the narrator because he's awful. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just so fascinating to me because Lolita just has so much momentum. Like it, it just, uh, I don't know. So the books that I like to read over and over again are, are places that I want to be. You know, they make me feel something, you know, and I get something each time. I'm curious, what books do you like to read? Lolita is in no way um, one of my favorite books. <laughs> I read Lolita, ugh, I don't know how many times during the process of writing this book, too many times. I don't know if I'm ever going to need to go back to that book again. I mean, I do teach the opening when I teach creative writing because I think it's incredibly instructive. And there's a lot to learn from it, both good and bad. But I do not see myself reading Lolita again anytime soon. Some of my favorite books are women's memoirs, women's stories, um, women telling the truth about their lives, no matter how complicated or how difficult, but in beautiful ways. So, for instance, Maggie Nelson. I love Leslie Jameson, T. Kira Madden, um, Melissa Phoebos. Those are the kind of writers that I find myself consistently coming back to and, you know, sort of being um, really interested and intrigued by. And those are also writers who I can read their, their stuff more than once and still feel like I'm finding things. At the same time, I also love books like Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert or The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. I also really like um, some, of the, some of the best, you know, um, books on writing because as a writer, it's, really lovely to sort of feel like even if you're sitting in your room by yourself, like you're being understood and heard by somebody. And those are things that are really important to me. At the same time, I also love just sort of fun books, you know, like I love Tina Fey's memoir, um, Bossy Pants. I love um, Mary Roach. I'm rereading um, Stiff for the second time, which is a story, of, which is a nonfiction book about the funeral and death industry in America. And it's just so fascinating. I love this book. Um, so, you know, not everything I read is fancy or literary. In any <laughs> not, at well, all, not at all. Well, so you mentioned Maggie Nelson. And so like, that was another thing that I wanted to talk about is the idea of memoir, because your book came, I felt like a good year for memoir. It started with uh, Uncanny Valley, which made a big splash. And then later was uh, a book called In the Land of Men, which I just thought was fabulous. I mean, in, it, it, in that book, it was about a secret relationship with David Foster Wallace, but you didn't even need that uh, secret relationship for the book to be interesting and spectacular because she 
she was running uh, the. She was the fiction editor, and I forget if it was Vanity Fair or GQ. It must have been GQ. I don't know. I think you, yeah. Yeah, but so it just seemed like um, memoir is is such an interesting style. Do you? I think I've heard you say that you needed to make this uh, being Lolita as a memoir so that it would be. You know, you would succeed in your goal of, of making a powerful book for young people. You know, that you wanted to you wanted to write the book that you yourself could have read when you were in high school. Um, do you work in other, uh, you know, other forms, or do you think you're a memoirist? I think that my first book was a memoir, but I don't think that every book I write is going to be a memoir at all. Um, I'm working on a couple of different projects right now. One is a memoir. One is a novel. You know, I also write essays. I've, I've, I write short stories. I, I write all sorts of stuff. Um, but I think that the majority of what I've published and what I've become known for is writing about trauma and writing true stories about, you know, being a woman today, uh, which can be very difficult and painful. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that so much of my work that has been sort of, you know, read and shared and listened to has been about those things. Because, you know, as a feminist, as someone who cares about social justice and politics, these things are really important to me. And I think it's incredibly meaningful. Um, and at the same time, you know, I also think, as you said, I mean, I really felt strongly about writing this as a memoir. I got a lot of advice, a lot to make it a novel over the years and I was adamant that no, this is not a novel, this is a memoir. And the reason this is a memoir and not a novel is to make the point that these things happen. This is not just some you know, sexualized fantasy on the page. This is not some simple story like in Lolita when she's 14 and it's so much clearer, but also, you know, I mean, the entire time Humbert Humbert is making it sound like she's seducing him and you know, all that, bullshit. But I mean, I wanted to tell the story in a way that took my reader. My, my goal was to really share with my reader how this happens, that it is not this simple thing, that it's complicated, that it is both good and truly awful. That There's the whole spectrum of experience and emotions in one of these kinds of things. And I did write the book that I wish I'd been able to read, when I was a teenager, but I also wrote a book that I hoped would connect to other women who had also had experiences like this. And I know that I did that because I still hear from readers every single day. They're almost entirely women. And, you know, they, they email me, they DM me, they send me messages. And they're all sort of similar things in that it's usually something like, you know, thank you so much for writing this. Um, this was very connective for me because I was in an abusive relationship or I was in a relationship with my teacher or I remember feeling so alone in high school. And, you know, there's all these different ways that women have connected. And I'm just so honored. And honestly, that is the most meaningful and the best part of writing this book, not the actual writing that was painful and terrible. <laughs> um, but after like knowing that I've been able to impact other people, that's that means so much. Well, so uh, an interesting point when I was reading your book is at times I was I was wondering about Nick's state of mind, the teacher, 
um, wondering whether or not his actions were both, you know, like how conscious his actions were. Um, but then I had the same thought, you know, like, do people care or wonder about Lolita, you know, like her actions and thoughts? Like, is is the narrator, Humbert, telling a story that we're fully buying into and we don't even care how she thinks? Well, I mean, Lolita really doesn't care about uh, Dolores Hayes, um, who, you know, Humbert Humbert calls Lolita throughout the book. There are moments where a careful reader has to face her pain. For instance, there's the section where after he rapes her, when he stops at a gas station to get her a bunch of treats, and there's like this long list of, you know, like candy, comic books, blah, blah, blah. And then in the middle of it is sanitary napkins. And because it's this long list, uh, this sort of paragraph full of just sort of run-on sentence of all the things he bought, if you're not a careful reader, you're going to miss that. But if you see that, it's pretty clear, um, or at least to a woman, it's clear that, oh, that's because she's bleeding. Oh, that's from sex. That's not from, you know, her period happening suddenly. That's from sex. So I think, and, you know, then there's the the, the description of how uh, she finds out that her mother is dead and she's just in the other room crying. And then she comes to him and he says, you know, very clearly it's because she had nowhere else to go. So there are there are these moments in, in Lolita that acknowledge what, her state is or what he is doing to her, but in these really subtle ways that I think can easily be missed or misread. And I think that's part of the point of the book and part of the project of the book. And, you know, I, I don't want to judge that in a lot of ways, but I do think that a woman reading Lolita is a very different experience than a man reading Lolita. Um, you know, Rebecca Solnit wrote this wonderful essay, Men Explain Lolita to Me, which was sort of a, a riff on her, um, you know, her very famous essay, Men, uh, Men Explain Things to Me. And Men Explain Lolita to Me is very sort of specifically about how <laughs> men have talked to her about Lolita. And it's it's really illuminative. It's really smart. I don't want to just, you know, restate what she says. Um, but basically, it's it's really about how Women experience the book Lolita, the story of Lolita, in this very different way. And as you said, it's so, it's such a huge part of our pop culture. First off, because this idea is, is built upon this archetype of, you know, women are either these virgins or they're whores. They're one or the other. And the character of Dolores Hayes, of Lolita, the way that Humbert Humbert interprets her and describes her, is sort of this perfect in-between you know, she's very young, she's 14, so there's like innocence, but then she's also this seductress, this Jezebel. So everything that happens to her is her fault. And, you know, there's so much iconic imagery. There's the original Kubrick poster of, you know, her in red heart-shaped glasses licking a lollipop. And the red heart-shaped glasses are so iconic to the book, but are actually in the book, at one point, he mentions, you know, my Riviera, my Riviera love staring at me over sun over sunglasses. He never says that they're red or heart shaped. In the Kubrick film, she's not wearing the, the movie is black and white. She's not wearing heart shaped glasses. That is truly an iconic image created for the selling of Lolita. 
Um, but now when you think about it, when you think about Lolita, that's one of the things that you think about. So that's part of why it was so exciting for me to have those glasses on the cover of my book, but broken because I, I really felt like that was an image that in a lot of way reflected my story. You think it's one thing, you think it's this beautiful thing, you have all these sort of promises made, but then that's actually not what it is at all. And it's very damaging and damaged and painful. And so then to, to get into Nick's head, why do you, I mean, he groomed you with the story of Lolita, which he said is this is the beautiful love story. Was it the writing, do you think, that he was taken with or like the idea of, of power? I, I'm just like, that's the thing that I wonder about with that story. I think in your mind, you were you were trying to embody more of a like a Romeo and Juliet star-crossed lovers thing where this is forbidden love. But, you know, that's that's not the story that he was uh, reading to you. I mean, I have no idea what was in his head. I, I have no idea. I have no way of knowing, you know. But I do believe that there are sort of two, two interpretations, two, way, two ways that the story could have been. You know, one version is that he was in love with me, that I was special, that this really was this sort of, you know, yeah, it was forbidden. Yeah, it got really ugly at the end and it was abusive, but nonetheless, it was based on love. And the other version of the story is that, nope, he was a predator. I was victimized. This was an awful thing from the get-go and I was being manipulated and groomed and so did not see it. And both both options are bad and bad, um, but through the process of the work I did around the book, I had to face the fact that it was, I was not special. I was not special. This was not love. Um, and that became very clear to me in a couple different ways. You know, in one, one example is how, um, so this is when I was still 17. I turned 18 in the middle of my senior year. I was still 17. Uh, we'd only known each other for about two months. And before Thanksgiving was when he, as a teacher in my high school, who was, you know, close to 10 years older than me, tried to trade the size of his dick for my bra size. And today, that would be, you know, sending a dick pic, trying to get me to send him a topless picture, right? That's what it would be today. But this was 20 years ago. So there were no cell phones, there were no digital, digital cameras, that wasn't, that, that wasn't um, an option. So less than two months after he knew me, when I was still squarely 17, when he was a teacher in my high school, he did that. And there is no excuse for that. There is no way to equivocate or to hedge or, or make an excuse. I mean, that is just straight up inappropriate no. And then another example of how I had to face the fact that, you know, no, this was not love. I wasn't special. I wasn't this mature, sexy thing that, like, he couldn't resist. Um, that I was, you know, older than, than 17, you know, that sort of idea that I was this powerful person that I thought I was. Is when I was faced with photographs of myself. Seeing myself at 17 and 18, 
I just, I, I'm not, I do not look like a grown up. I do not look like this sexy, powerful, confident creature. I look sad. I look skinny and tiny and like a teenage girl. I look vulnerable and scared. There is nothing about me that said, that would have said to anyone, this is okay. And so the fact that he thought that, and that was, and he saw me as someone who was vulnerable and in a tough place and saw that's someone I want to fuck. That's not okay. There's no way to excuse that. Well, so I was also kind of struck with the amount of drinking that was going on at the same time too, because it seemed like that was, it was more like playing grown up than actually like you, he, uh, there was an, kind of this playing of the story you know, let's drink martinis or whatever it is that you guys. But it seemed like there. Was, I, my my recollection is there was a lot of of drinking. Yeah, and I think that's also really reflective, in the sense that you know I was eighteen when our relationship turned sexual. I was still only eighteen, and I had never really had hard liquor. Like, I mean, I'd had some beers, but in a lot of ways, even though my my high school time was actually like, you know, quite troubled in a lot of ways. I was, I was in other ways of very much goody two shoes. I never did drugs. I wasn't a drinker. You know, I think I had smoked cigarettes for like a week. Um, <laughs> you know, I was that kind of girl. So our time together was with a lot of alcohol because he would give me a lot of alcohol. So more than half of our sexual encounters looking back, I was clearly not able to truly give consent because I was trashed. And by today's standards, that would have been considered rape. But I just was told very clearly by him, explicitly and also, you know, sort of in these uh, subtle ways that like, well, this is how adults act. This is what an adult relationship is. And of course, I played along because the last thing I wanted was for him to think I was a child. I wanted him to think that I was this mature woman. And I absolutely was not. So one of the ways your book is really uh, successful is that, and it's almost like uh, I take it for granted, but there's there's such a granular level of detail. Just, uh, mm -hmm. And I, I, I assume this comes out of your journaling, but I'm, I'm curious about like your drafting and like uh, how much you had to rewrite it because um, you really realize this time and this place and just reading it from that is really interesting because, you know, you kind of, uh, you, you overlap this pre-digital world where things were, were moving into the world that we're in now, but, you know, you preceded a little bit. Um, but you, you have all those details in there with, the, you know, the different different social media available at the time and telephones. You know, this is just barely pre-cell phone and stuff. I'm curious about your journaling practice and how much that informed your writing and then, you know, your drafting process also. Well, you know, I did reread all of my high school journals, at least from that year, which was about a dozen of them. And I do not recommend that to anybody. It's so painful. It's so embarrassing. It's like, oh, my God. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, not surprisingly, in my journals, I wasn't writing about the technology. I wasn't writing about, you know, things like that. I was writing about my feelings. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes like, what had happened that day? Or, 
what the teacher had done that day or, you know, things like that. I wasn't really um, talking about, I wasn't giving setting or, you know, like talking about what I wore. None of that was in my journals. And also none of my journals are in the book. Um, there might be a stolen line or two. I think there's like a couple little sections that I copied because I just sort of thought they were, um, they sort of gave a level of depth um, for the reader to understand like, oh, that is what I said at the time. But it's not like the book is my journals at all in any way. But there were a lot of things that I did to try and um, fill in some of the gaps of like setting, you know, what, what was I wearing? What did I, what, what was I sort of, what was my life like when I was 17 and 18? So one of the things I did was I made a bunch of playlists um, <laughs> and my rules for the playlists were like, okay, the music had to be things that I was listening to at that age. Doesn't matter if it came out and I listened to it later. No, 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 no. What was I listening to when I was a senior in high school? So there's one where I've got one playlist that's just like, you know, a bunch of sort of like angry girl songs and things like that. And like, you know, Fiona Apple and Hole and Garbage and Tori Amos and fun things like that. And then I've got a couple... I've got two other playlists from that year. One's just like dramatic songs, like Weezer, Say It Ain't So, like, you know, Bush, Glycerine, like all these sort of like big songs with lots of feelings, which is, of course, how you feel in high school. Um, and then just another one of just sort of like songs that I remember coming out that year that I listened to a lot. So that was one way that I sort of tried to like delve back into 17 year old Allison, because I don't know about you, but like for me, sometimes I can hear a song and just like, bam, I'm back there. Like I'm back in a, in a particular time. It brings me just, it brings you right back to a relationship or a person or a place. So that was really helpful. And then something else I did was I did a lot of sort of just like web searching or like for instance I was a big reader of Sassy magazine back then um I was a big I loved Delia's catalogs and you can find all these things online so it was like you know going through those things online and you know doing a lot of things like that to try to like fill in the blanks to what my world was like and learning that would like spark memories you know it would remind me of specific things it would it, it was a process that both helped fill things in, but also gave me new things to write about. So it was this lovely little, you know, uh, practice that I found to be really helpful and something that I recommend for all memoirists. Well, so then do you still, so that, I mean, you shot my theory down clearly. Because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I did uh, some kind of like high school scribbling stuff, but it was not journaling by any like I, I'm curious. I, I was uh, Joyce Carol Oates really stressed the importance of journaling in her in her master class, uh, mm -hmm. and, I, and so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I mean, so like you're you're writing, and you're also you know just keeping a record of the day, but um, uh, do you so do do you journal still? I haven't been so much lately, but I do recommend it as a pro as a practice. And I have, um, as an adult, spent long periods where I'm writing every day. And I don't always think about it as journaling, as just sort of like taking notes of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, I um, sometimes I'll do a very sort of uh, 
concrete kind of fun artistic almost journaling where it's like you know I put in literal scraps from the day like receipts or you know I found a cool leaf or stuff like that like sometimes my journaling will be more of a almost capturing process sometimes it is sometimes it's just lists endless lists sometimes it is more sort of traditional journaling what you think about journaling of like so today was pretty and Um, it's sort of whatever works for you right now. I'm not journaling right now because I feel doing publicity and my students having my own students and then trying to work on this new project, I'm feeling a little sapped right now. So I'm, it's very helpful for me right now to, when I'm not working about on writing or with writing to just sort of not write at all. (laughs) Um, but you know, obviously there's, I mean, it, it changes depending on sort of what's going on in my life. So I'm sure that I will come back to journaling as a practice in some way or another. I have no doubts about that. It's just sort of a matter of, you know, what will the practice look like? And that'll, that will be revealed. Well, so one of the other questions that we frequently ask in this space is the idea of like a writer's practice. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just curious about whether or not, it's the the project that dictates the thing or if it's uh really you know codified where you have to write every day at a certain time for a certain amount of time or you know like uh is it more site specific where you need the, you know you know what is your writerly practice like and uh could you explain that a little bit i am not a write every day er Um, it's just not for me, but I do. So like right now I have a writing buddy and we have like zoom writing dates twice a week usually. And those are really productive. And, um, you know, we'll meet for like an hour and a half, something like that. And, um, so I do that and I don't think that there are any rules. I think it really is a matter of trying different things like try writing every day, try doing the whole morning pages, the artist's way thing. Um, try writing at night, try writing once a week. You know, I think the really important thing is to just sort of keep writing. At the same time, though, when I was working on the book, there were times when I would take like a couple weeks off where I wouldn't write at all because the book was really hard to write. And people always think that, right? People oftentimes think that like this process was like healing or cathartic. And it's like, yeah, no, this <laughs> writing this book was painful and terrible and truly awful. And um, I do not recommend <laughs> writing a memoir about drama to anybody but I also believe that like sometimes you don't choose the project the project chooses you and this project chose me I could not escape this project this was just the book that I had to write so I did it to the best of my ability and I'm, I'm proud of that do you think so I mean it is it's it's uh it's tough like it's not a pleasant book um from the trauma point of view, yeah. Do you th- do you think you'll reach a point where you you know the book will stand alone as a piece of art? You know, you can separate the trauma from the artistry. Like, so that's the strange thing about this conversation is, you know, I want to celebrate your artistry because it's 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 beautifully crafted, but at the same time, it's also very painful, and so. It's, it's like a difficult conversation to, to have. It already has been separated. I mean, you know, when, when you write, even if you're writing memoir, you're writing essays, 
the you on the page is an act of creation. You know, the character of Allison and being Lolita, that's not me. I mean, it's true to me. It's reflective and accurate, but it's not me. It's not all of me. You know, it's only part of me. So I, in or, I, I deeply believe that in order to write an essay or a memoir regarding trauma, you have to have done a lot of the processing work already. You know, you need to be in a space with what happened that you can separate yourself from the book and from your trauma in a way to write about it beautifully. And that's definitely something that I feel like I've done that, you know, I mean, that's why I'm able to talk about these sorts of things and not, you know, to start crying or something. Um, because while what happened to me was awful and terrible and, you know, will never go away. And, you know, that's something that I will live with. It doesn't mean that it defines me in any way or my writing or, you know, what I'm capable of. And so I'm always very honored and touched when people say that, you know, they, <laughs> it's weird to say they liked the book, but, you know, I'm, I'm very honored by that because it is something that I created outside of myself in some ways. And I think that there's a lot, there's a lot of wonderful things and there's a lot of power in being able to create art from something awful. And I don't think there's anything more powerful than that. Is, has anyone contacted you in, in terms of turning it into some kind of cinematic work or? I have an agent. Um, yeah, I have a film agent and there's, you know, sort of like a whole bunch of different discussions and different producers and things like that. So there's nothing to share, but you know, I, I have a film agent. Yeah. Well, because that, the, the very opening scene with the, the locker doors open, it's just, it feels really cinematic. I, <laughs> I, I can, I can see that in, in a, in a film pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, from a, <laughs> from a sort of different perspective in a lot of ways, like it's a really simple book to adapt. Like there's very clearly like a beginning, a middle and end there's clear narrative arc, you know? So I think, um, I'm hopeful that, you know, eventually it'll get picked up somewhere, you know? Um, but I mean, that's so out of my control. And of course I, I only want it to be done if it's with, people that I trust and, you know, a group that I am um, excited by and feel like they get what the book is and, you know, so yeah, but that's really exciting. And I'm very proud of that too. Well, we're just about done, but I'm curious, can you speak at all about what you're working on next or is it, are you, you've not one that shares that material before? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of working on two projects and I haven't quite decided which one is, you know, the project. One I'm working on is another memoir um, and um, sort of something that has happened a lot since I've published the book is that people ask me a lot about healing. How do you heal from this? And I both, it's funny because I both believe in some ways that I am sort of as healed as you can be, but also, you know, it never goes away. Healing never truly happens. You know, there, there nothing changes the past. So I think that's really complicated. And that's something that I've been asked about a lot. So I feel like maybe that's worth exploring. At the same time, I'm also working on a novel. Um, so, you know, it's, I haven't quite, the, the decision has not been made for me yet about, <laughs> about which one of these things is sort of what I want to dig into. And I think that's partially because, you know, since I'm still, um, I mean, this book being Lolita is still so very much of my daily life and my, you know, and the work that I'm doing. 
right now. So I think that sort of once that calms down, um, the next project will will appear and raise its hand and say, this is it. <laughs> and I'll just have to be like, okay. <laughs> well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, of course. Thank you. I'm so honored for your time and I'm so excited. You bet. You've been listening to Allison Wood on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio on the SyncBook.com. For more information about her work, visit her website, allisonwood.com. That's one L, two S's. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to podcasts via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at SyncBook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. Currently, all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. Feel free to use the search feature to explore the connections. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And yes, Lolita is beautiful, but yes, it is also terrible. We can hold both. It's second nature to walk home before the sun goes down. And put your keys between your knuckles when there's boys around. Isn't it funny how we laugh it off to hide our fear when there's nothing funny here? Sick intuition that they taught us so we won't freak out We hide our figures doing anything to shut their mouths We smile away to ease the tension so it don't go south But there's nothing funny now